Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. So we're coming up on the end of Pride Month, and as a listener and a reader, you likely already know just how much queer music and community has influenced both our staff and our publication. And honestly, we can't talk about the music without talking about the very real threats and violence targeting queer and trans people right now. Not to mention the crush of anti-LGBTQ legislation happening across the United States. It's a very scary moment, and our contributing editor, Isabella Herrera, recently wrote a piece that dove into how hateful rhetoric and political action is affecting queer nightlife. She's here to talk about that piece with me and our features editor, Jill Mapes. Welcome. Hi, Pooja. Hi, Pooja. This is not an easy thing to talk about. And something that I'm thinking about, you know, we just threw our big Pride event with our sister publication, Them. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, especially being in New York, thinking about how much the celebration of Pride is actually rooted in so much work that is happening and is actually a form of resistance. And... Isabella, I thought that your story really captured the current climate in queer spaces across the country. You know, we being in New York, we have a very particular view of it. And it's very different elsewhere. For those who haven't read Isabella's piece already, it's called The Fight for Queer Nightlife in an Era of Political Violence. It's on our website. Everyone should read it. Go check it out. But before we get to those stories that you reported and we meet some of the people in your piece, I feel like we need to kind of lay out and really get into what is happening right now with this dehumanizing legislation in this country. And it's being proposed in states from Florida to Texas to Ohio. It is overwhelming. I feel like, especially as a staff, we talk about this all the time, there is just so much going on that it can be hard to comprehend and really wrap our brains around it all. Jill, could you give us a kind of quick rundown of where we're at right now? It is really crazy out there right now um, with regards to transgender youth and laws trying to limit the freedom of transgender youth. Everything from gender-affirming health care to which bathrooms they can use. Mm-hmm. There are laws in certain states putting pressure on teachers to out students. Obviously, the ability to play sports on the teams that mm-hmm. affirm their genders, that's a huge issue. Laws that prevent transgender or non-binary people from updating their IDs. Mm-hmm. Like every facet of life you can imagine on a basic level. Tons of places in the South, in the Midwest, are introducing these kinds of bills. There have been f- almost 500 bills introduced since the beginning of this year. Uh, there have been 
161 protests or threats targeting drag events from early last year until this spring. Mm -hmm. And that is another area that's obviously where music comes in. The drag ban definitely got kind of out of hand. It started in Tennessee. It was basically like no drag performances in public or where there could be minors. So you're talking like story hours in libraries. You're talking about pride parades and things like limiting how queer people show up and how they use the art forms that are available to them, which is drag. And so one positive thing that happened earlier in June in Tennessee, the drag ban was struck down and found unconstitutional. So that's what's happening legislatively. But I want to zoom out if we can really quickly, because I do think we already see a huge history of violence against queer spaces, which is obviously what your piece is about, Isabella. I just want to run through that really quickly because there's the now and then there's like the context of this stuff when you step back. And the big one that people talk about that is still short of the Pulse shooting um, seven years ago in Orlando is Upstairs Lounge mm-hmm. in New Orleans in 1973. We're talking four years after Stonewall riots. We're talking early queer liberation. And 32 people died. This is arson. They burned it down. I mean, you think about that time. This was People were living in secret. So this was a space where people went to to live their true lives. So that happens. You know, this violence moves in circles and the late 90s were like such a charged time because you had progress. And every time there's progress with the queer community, just like a lot of other movements, it's like the straights catch wind and then they're pissed off and then they're like, let's start up this fucking violence. So like the late 90s, you had like freaking Ellen coming out and then you had Matthew Shepard. You had Mm -hmm. like – In 97, Atlanta, Other Side Lounge, uh, the guy who actually bombed the 96 Olympics and bombed two abortion clinics bombed this lesbian bar in 97. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. In 2000, a man with the last name Gay opened fire in a gay bar in Virginia, killed a man, injured six others because he saw two men hug. We went almost 15 years without another shooting or bombing or fatal arson at a queer club. And that time period, gay marriage was completely revolutionized from not being legal anywhere in America to being legal in many states and eventually being upheld federally by the Supreme Court in 2015. The year before that, we started seeing national violence again in queer spaces. In 2014 in Seattle, a 30-year-old man poured gasoline on the stairs of a gay club and set it on fire on New Year's Eve. And then obviously two and a half years later, what happened in Pulse in Orlando? At the time, this was the deadliest mass shooting in American history. It's now the second. One out of three people who was in the club that night was injured or killed. It was 49 people killed, 53 were injured. So this is so charged in so many ways. Whenever there is progress, there is a reaction to the progress. So that brings us to, like, let's bully transgender youth. Let's bully queer youth. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the things that can feel a little bit frustrating, besides everything, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I I think one of the, the ways that the government tries to frame this is by kind of, like, coding the language so that it doesn't seem as bluntly hateful or pointed as it is like this goes back for decades in New York famously cabaret laws Mm -hmm. have been traditionally kind of pointed at queer spaces um, 
the Stonewall riots, ultimately, it was because Stonewall got raided by a public morals squad sector of the police, right? And now a lot of the legislation that we're seeing put out addresses, quote, adult cabaret in a way to subvert the actual thing that they're going after. It is crazy how, like, we see this cycle of also language just on repeat. Absolutely, yeah. With all of that said, I mean, it is clear how all of this has been influencing even the culture writ large, like, Jill, all of the things that you just laid out for us has influenced art and it has influenced our culture's economies and musical communities. Isabella, I know that we had talked about this piece before it came to life, but I would love to just hear a little bit about what you were considering in writing about the kind of climate that we're in right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that I feel like really guided this piece was this misconception that people can dismiss queer nightlife as like partying or just excess Mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe don't understand how deep of an emotional and financial support network it can Mm -hmm. be for people. And I think, you know, to your point earlier about us being in New York, I think especially across the country in more conservative or right-wing states, Mm -hmm. those places are even more, you know, sacred to people and even more important in many ways. And, you know, one of the things that led my idea with the reporting was definitely talking to people in states where a lot of this legislation was starting to be passed or introduced. And I kind of started with the idea of looking at drag first because that was the more immediate, you know, effect on queer nightlife. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I talked to people in Missouri and Florida and Tennessee. And then, you know, I also thought about people who are like trans DJs who tour across the country who, Mm -hmm. you know, go to other states and perform. And how do they navigate this climate, you know, knowing that other states have more intense open carry laws Mm -hmm. or, you know, just a climate of hostility Mm -hmm. against trans and queer people? But I also felt it was important to talk about a place like New York in the piece um, because, you know, we assume that Brooklyn is this like queer haven. But, you know, even in our own backyard, there is violence uh, against queer people. You know, I interviewed someone who is an owner of Rash, which is a nightclub in Bushwick that uh, experienced an arson in 2022. I just think it was important to kind of give this very broad overview of how this is an issue across the country. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Is there kind of an overwhelming theme or themes that you saw while you were reporting? Absolutely. I think one of the first things was the discourse, basically, Mm -hmm. the rhetoric that's being used. The text of a lot of these bills, it's very vague. It's written with ambiguity in mind, Mm -hmm. honestly, in Mm -hmm. order to allow for an an open interpretation that could potentially lead to harassment Mm -hmm. of people. You know, a lot of them, specifically with the drag bands, they talk about male or female impersonators or people who perform 
with a gender presentation that isn't the one that they were assigned at birth, and specifically also tying that to how they're harming minors or how they're promoting obscenity to minors, always with this idea of queer people are grooming children Mm -hmm. or, you know, obscene, right? And so a lot of people interviewed for this piece, you know, obviously, maybe they even if they weren't drag performers or even if they didn't even have drag at their events or their venues or anything, the language was so vague that it could be misapplied into their spaces, right? right? Or into their public events that they had. A lot of people I spoke to, specifically one person from St. Louis who is a venue owner, Kenny Marks, said that, you know, Someone might be able to misinterpret me, you know, as a drag queen because my gender marker is different on my ID than, you know, Mm -hmm. presenting as like a trans mask person, Mm -hmm. you know. Could you tell us about the folks that you talked to who had to end events or shut down some of their recurring things that they were doing? Yeah, yeah. So I spoke to one DJ from Atlanta, Zeta Zane. Uh, she's a trans woman, and she told me about a party that she was going to play in March, which was organized by an organization called Southern Fried Queer Pride, I believe. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, the day of the event, the organizers received these violent messages on Facebook from right-wing groups, people associated with the Proud Boys, you know, lots of extremist organizations, and basically being like, you better watch out. Mm -hmm. Like, we're sharing this event around circles, like, Mm -hmm. basically implying that they were going to show up to the event Mm -hmm. and do something violent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hours before the event, the organizers decided, like, you know, I think it's better to be safe than sorry, and they decided to cancel it. And Zeta Zane, who was going to play the party, you know, she told me that she, like, has dealt with a lot of shit Mm -hmm. uh, being a trans woman in in these spaces, but she said she's never had a party canceled Mm -hmm. out of fear of safety. So it was like, I think that speaks to, like, the climate that we're in right now. Yeah, yeah. I also, I thought that you broached this topic well in your feature, but also it's something that the three of us have been talking about is the idea of a safe space because that phrase is both very regularly associated with queer communities. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it is also very regularly weaponized by the right. <laughs> but then it also has this complexity of meaning within the queer community of itself. So I would love to just take a second to talk about that because when, you know, this DJ is telling you that they've never had a event canceled, it kind of completely flips the idea of a safe space or like a, a queer nightlife event being a safe space on its head on four different levels. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So I would love to just talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think it's such an important part of this story, too. You know, everyone that I talked to basically said they can try their best and be as intentional as they possibly can be about creating a safe space for people. Mm -hmm. But there are things that they obviously can't control. And I think the most immediate one of those is gun violence. Right. And, you know, they definitely talked about the security measures that they have to consider being queer spaces in general. The idea of a safe space, you know, is, okay, we're inclusive. We, you know, don't tolerate racism. We don't tolerate homophobia. We don't, you know, all of these things that are sort of creating a sanctuary for people from an outside world that Mm -hmm. is violent to Mm -hmm. them. And when a space that is supposed to be safe has a threat of violence, has the threat of being shut down, all of those things, that safety gets taken away, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of the people I spoke to also said that, you know, the idea of safety within queer communities is also a conversation. The way that people's racial privilege shows up on the dance floor, the way that Gender presentation, how that, you know, whether you pass or not as a trans person, how that privileges 
influencing who gets booked mm-hmm. in certain spaces, who gets compensated. Mm-hmm. All these sorts of like dynamics, you know, intersect with this threat of gun violence that is happening right now. I'm wondering, just generally speaking, how do you reconcile wanting to make a purposefully inclusive event and space with not wanting to bring Cops the there. wrong kind of attention to it? And I I think it was Kenny also in your piece who said, like, they don't necessarily identify their gender identity when they're interviewed and they will focus on almost anything else which they find hard to reconcile. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely. They said that in interviews, they're opening a venue right now. They're yeah. about to open a, their own venue. And I think they said that they believe it's going to be the first trans-owned bar mm-hmm. in Missouri. But in doing press around the opening, they've been very hesitant to say this is a trans-owned bar. Yeah. They mentioned to me that, you know, they say they're queer, but specifically saying trans-owned, they have a lot of fear around that. And yeah. they sort of resort to other things like I think they mentioned they talked about like cocktails or something Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. because just sort of like being in that climate you know putting an extra layer of uh, another eye on you another target I think is a fear it's definitely a fear among people and the other issue you know as Jill just brought up is like preserving these spaces for people and not bringing in law enforcement which is I think a big issue I mean we know that historically Police don't have a good relationship with queer communities. There's a lot of discrimination, a lot of harassment. And so that was another issue that a lot of the party organizers, I think specifically QDP from Nashville, from Tennessee, who I interviewed, they were very much dealing with these questions. Um, You know, how do we make sure people are safer? We try to keep the threat outside Mm -hmm. of our party. You know, obviously the threat is not inside the party. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you keep the threat out without also making people uncomfortable by having cops around? Yeah. So... It's a very layered challenge. Have either of you spoken to anyone about what kind of organizing community in a safe but kind of blunt way is, like what that looks like? One of the things that QDP talked about was doing something as small as like metal detector wands, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like just checking for guns, Mm -hmm. something that small. One thing that Kenny mentioned in in our conversation was sort of the importance of more unofficial spaces, Mm -hmm. more underground Mm -hmm. queer spaces Mm -hmm. that aren't in traditional venues, aren't in traditional bars. Right. And how, you know, DIY scenes and like underground spaces have always been important to queer people, you know, because in many ways, sadly, like because queer people, we've been pushed into the shadows. Right. right? And no alternative. But I think that in this time, that is also, you know, a hope, you know, to have that space, to have these underground spaces where, like, oh, if people don't know about this space, it's not publicly advertised, then, like, this can be a much safer space than right. something that is accessible to anyone. Right, right. It's very sad to have this community pushed underground, but the one thing that keeps ringing with me is that these laws are focused on youth and that youth don't always have the hookup on things and they don't – like these spaces are not meant for them. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. nightlife is inherently for people that can – go out legally Mm -hmm. and drink. And so I think that like there's this part of the issue and then there's the fact of – Music is such an important space for young people and transgender youth that are being targeted. And I'm like a little struggling in my head of how these two communities like connect generationally. I just am so worried for the kids. <laughs> I'm just so worried yeah, for the I, kids. I, I, I feel like this is something that we've talked about too, where, and Jill, you also mentioned this, where, like with highs come low, yeah, right? Yeah. And, 
And I really feel like there is a level of visibility and a cultural acceptance that yeah. is much more progressive in the arts communities than any other era of this country. And I think, like, there are trans pop stars, there are trans award-winning actors, there are, like, this is all very much a thing that is becoming normalized and celebrated in arts communities. And so with that comes this, like, much larger visibility of it, which I hope helps the youth. Yeah. Um, because, like, they have the internet, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> like... The one good thing the internet is for is is for hopefully finding community that can be supportive to you. I think the big takeaway from your piece was resilience, yes. right? There is this energy of hope. And kind of like mutual aid and support. And I would love to hear about some of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that resonated with every single person I interviewed was that these spaces are where they experience joy, you mm -hmm. know, that they're a place where they can have like a connection with music, a connection with their chosen family. And I know that's a very, you know, trite word when we talk about mm -hmm. queer communities, but I do think it's very legitimate, like if you have no other support network, if you have no other community, mm -hmm. to have that space is, like, life-saving mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. Everyone that I spoke to talked about that and talked about no matter if you take away the physical space, like, you can't destroy those connections. Mm -hmm. You can't destroy that kind of community because you can't destroy queer people. You can't eradicate queer people. And no matter, you know, legislation is not going to mm -hmm. stop that. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, also the idea of, like, these spaces creating financial support, too. You're like, you know, in a very practical way, Jake from Rash said it in my piece, but nightlife is like an engine for people's living wages, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. This is how promoters, bartenders, DJs, other types of nightlife workers is how they make their daily living, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so having that ecosystem is really important for people. And a lot of the people I spoke to as well, whether it was QDP or Kenny from St. Louis mentioned that these spaces can be a place for mutual aid, you know, whether they're doing a GoFundMe to raise money for someone's top surgery mm -hmm. or even raising money for another like nonprofit or community organization. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that it's like, you know, obviously it's more than just this like space of joy. It's more than just an escape or anything. I think that's like a trope when we talk about mm -hmm. nightlife, but it has this larger social purpose and community purpose. I mean, I feel like it's a literally a fueling station for the resistance, you know, <laughs> like that's how I feel about about I mean I'm we talk about it all the time on this show that I'm like a club kid at heart <laughs> but it is it's like a place to feel actualized in a way that you don't elsewhere so that you can take that energy onward absolutely right? absolutely and, and can I read a quote from Zane in your piece Please. that really stuck with me Zane says, you're not going to stop the girls from getting hormones. You're not going to stop them from putting a wig on, putting lashes on. You're not going to stop that. You can't get rid of all of us. And, like, that to me is the universal sentiment here, right? Like, that is the thing that really comes out through your piece. Is Absolutely. Like, there is a wide horror in this country, and all of these very brave people are being, like, come get me like I dare you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Could we quickly talk about what listeners, readers, music fans can do in, a, in their small way, whatever that way might be? I will say this. I was at a show. Uh, I was at the Wednesday and 10C concert the other night. And 10C, who, if you don't know 10C, they're a great band, a uh, great artist, a band artist. I I've got to look into that. Anyway, the, at the merch table, they were raising money, um, do, taking donations for transgender law centers mm-hmm. and youth, transgender youth fund. And I, I do want to say I've, I think there are a lot of artists, especially younger artists, who are trying to shine a light. They're trying to do little things like that. And these are these are small artists that need like all the merch money they can get. And mm-hmm. they're like, hey, I'm doing a DIY fundraiser at my merch table. Mm-hmm. And I have so much respect for that. And I really think that like if you care about this, that's a great way to follow a lead. Mm-hmm. And if you don't need the lead of a musician who's saying, hey, this is what I align with. I did the vetting. Like – do you have a state that is close to your heart that mm-hmm. is not super liberal? Seek it out. Like, look, I'm from Ohio. It's like I look up different legal funds and give to the in the states. Like, maybe you don't care about anybody in Montana, but maybe you can empathize with the fact that there's like no people that live there. And if you're a transgender youth, is probably insanely lonely. Yeah. And now they're like telling teachers to out kids there. So yeah. like, I think just like, just support trans artists, support queer artists. I think that's mm-hmm. that's a way to materially help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, donate to local community organizations, donate yes. to yeah. places like Lambda Legal, Transgender Law Center. Mm. Those those types of like legal funds I think are really important too because obviously legal funds of trying to battle these things are extremely high. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. If you haven't yet already, please read Isabella's story. It's called The Fight for Career Nightlife in an Era of Political Violence on our website at pitchfork.com. Really appreciate you both being here. Thank you, Pooja. Thank you, Pooja. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Brian Dommel is our showrunner. And Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening. 